Welcome to CAE Pilot Podcast, a podcast that brings together aviation professionals to discuss life as a pilot, training, and career advice. You can find us at cae.com forward slash CAE Pilot dash podcast or subscribe to our show on your audio podcasting platform of choice. You can also find our video podcast on our YouTube channel. So welcome to this episode of the CAE Pilot Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Matt Jones to the podcast. And Matt, you've done something very special. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, so 2019, before the world, or particularly the aviation world, imploded, we were lucky enough to fly a Supermarine Spitfire around the world. It took us four months, uh, never been done before. And uh, based on what's happened since, I have to say, I find it uh, almost difficult to believe we did it. <laughs> and we always, the first question we always ask is about uh, the one moment that stands out for you um, in your career. Does that moment come from this trip? There were enormous number of very, very special moments in this trip, as I'm sure you can appreciate. And there were a couple of moments that were not so special, uh, as, as you probably appreciate too. Um, it, it certainly, certainly as an event, it was, you know, I, I don't think my aviation career will get any better. Um, however, I did have the great honour of flying uh, Wing Commander Tom Neal in 2015, when at Goodwood we held a 75th anniversary uh, celebration or commemoration for the... Battle of Britain, victory in the Battle of Britain. And Tom at the time was the greatest living survivor, fighter pilot with 14 um, victories to his name. And to have him in the back of my two-seat Spitfire with uh, 34 other fighters around us and leading that over the White Cliffs on a September day uh, was you know, truly special. You know, the, the, our, our trip around the world was about sharing this aeroplane with lots of people. And, and I think, you know, we achieved that goal. But from a completely personal point of view, you know, having that moment with him and being, you know, such a poignant, or such a poignant moment in itself, but, but, but with such a key player, you know, a member of the few that was, that was very, very special. So I, I, I hard push to beat that, I think. He must have been full of stories, but let me ask you this. Was he giving you pointers on how to fly it when he was sitting behind you? <laughs> I did say to him the night before, Tom, you've survived the Battle of Britain and the whole of World War II, but you've got the most dangerous flight in your life coming up, and that's flying with me tomorrow, which he, he half thought was funny and half thought was a proper warning, I think. <laughs> I had, um, no, I, I, in fact, there's a lot of people that think, I, I, fluked a, I fluked one of the best landings I've ever done that day, and there's a lot of people that still don't believe it was me that landed it. They think he was on the controls in the back, and uh, oh, well, let's, let's take it as 50-50. Well, there's, there's, you know, the right time, the right people, the right place can all come together to produce amazing things, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We were, we were very lucky that day. Tell me about your, your passion for the Spitfire, where that came from. 
I think as a as a sort of I'm in my mid to late forties now. I think it's very difficult to grow up with parents who lived through the war or grandparents who were a part of the war, not to have some sort of interest in it. And certainly, certainly being or wanting to be a pilot since I was very young, I always knew what it was. I, even as a as a 12-year-old, I remember there was a model shop in town and I remember, you know, it was around about the time I was allowed to walk into town on my own. I remember walking up the hill one day and it had a, I don't, can't remember the scale, but it was probably, you know, four foot, five foot wingspan. And when you're 12, you're not that big. And that, that was huge. And it was a spitfire in the window. And I thought, oh, one, one day, wouldn't it be amazing if I, uh, if I got to have a go at that remote control spitfire? You know, never, never really dreaming at that point that there might be a chance to fly the real thing. I think as a result, it's almost been passed down in folklore like a member of the family. And as a result, uh, this country particularly, but I know very many other countries and, uh, and Canada, of course, right up there, um, have an enormous fondness for the aircraft for exactly the same reason. And one of the things, you know, one of the things we found on our round the world trip and, and one of the reasons for doing the trip was that, you know, we are blessed here. We have quite a few Spitfires still flying. But many of the countries we flew in owe their freedom to that aircraft too and the people that, that flew it. And, and very few of those countries have seen the aircraft since the war. So, you know, there's a real opportunity just to let them see it. And, and I guess more than anything, let them hear it because, you know, it's, the way it sounds is so special. And what was the reaction of people when they'd see the airplane? Um, it was incredible. I mean, we, we had... You know, the, numerous, numerous people come to see us uh, with stories of, of parents and grandparents. And actually one in, one in Kelowna springs to mind, whose father was a, um, he was actually a Lancaster pilot, but, you know, who, who based over in the UK and just came really to hear the sound of the Merlin, of course, of which the Lancaster has four. Um, and he told us a story about evading you know, evading enemy fighters in a bomber and uh, it brought me to tears. And, you know, it was, he was in tears himself. It, it, it sort of evoked memory, memories in him of his parents, of his father. And, uh, and that is what this aeroplane does for people. So there were an enormous number of exceptional reactions to it. And I can't think of any negative ones, all hugely positive. Yeah, and it's amazing how uh, certain things. I remember doing an event with Captain Gene Cerner, with Captain Gene Cernan, sorry. He's the last man to walk on the moon. And there was, a, there was a gentleman who came up to him after the event and was crying. And he said, You know, I watched you from the beach as you took off that night or whatever mm -hmm. it was. And it's, uh, it's interesting how those emotions are so present, even so many years later. So it must have been, yeah. it must have been incredible for people to sort of, especially thinking of where many places have come since. Yeah, absolutely right. Very, very rarely does a, you know, pe people do fall in love with machinery. But very rarely does a piece of machinery have a sort of a, a purpose like the Spitfire had and, and, and do its job so successfully, but at the same time exude unbelievable beauty 
in the way in its form and grace in the way it flies married with just you know the sensational sound of the of the engine it's so much so that that kids who hear spitfires fly past today who are used to seeing and hearing aircraft all the time even now it kind of piques their interest like what what, you know what is that And, and it creates emotion in people that don't know its history you know so so it's a it's a very um it's an extremely emotive piece of engineering so how do you go from the kid and, you know, I have this vision of you with your nose pressed up against the window of the model <laughs> shop, you know, tell us a little bit about your career and how you ended up, you know, doing this uh, great trip. Sure. I wanted to be a pilot since I was a kid or since I was very, very young. And I, my, my dream was to join the Air Force. Uh, my eyesight wasn't up to it. Um, and I kind of went off on a different path at that point. I thought, well, that's what I wanted to do. So if I can't do that, that's fine. Um, went to university, ended up working for a financial institution in the city, um, but sat at my window at my desk, uh, looking out very close to the flight line into Heathrow, thinking, what am I doing sat here every day? You know, I need to, this isn't me. And um, so I started doing some flying training on the side and ended up going to America for a year and a half and, and doing a lot of our building and work as an instructor over there. Came back and got a job flying private jets and um, helicopters and then, uh, and then got very lucky and just sort of met a guy who bought a two-seat Spitfire and said, hey, you should learn to fly this. Like, Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> He said a few other things at the time, and I didn't remember what they were because I was so blown away by uh, by the opening gambit. And um, you know, in many ways, in many ways, it's unfair because there are so many people who will sweep hangar floors for fifteen years for the chance to, you know, have a go in one. And uh, I kind of very lucky that I that I, despite my passion for them at a fairly young age, I was I was able to have that opportunity. And so what do you, what's your career look like now? So uh, that, it's Steve, Steve Brooks, who, is, who owned the aircraft, and he and I set up uh, Boltby Flight Academy. And that was just over 10 years ago now. And uh, that was based around that two-seat Spitfire. And initially we were, we set up to uh, train pilots to fly because I found in my experience it was very difficult to find anyone who was who was prepared to teach me Mm -hmm. because there aren't that many people flying them and there certainly aren't that many people flying them from the rear seat which is a which is a you know an interesting experience in itself and you know the holy grail really at the time was being able to take passengers up because everyone wanted to have a go but there was no there was no regulatory mechanism by which we were able to do that so so we thought well you know I had a great time learning to fly. I'm sure there are other pilots who understand the risks of flying a non-ICAO, you know, recognized aircraft, essentially a war machine, mm-hmm. who could understand the risk and would be prepared to pay for the experience of doing it. So we set up and had a great, had a great response from uh, people, you know, doing 
short courses or long courses and getting up to sort of solo standard. And um, in that time, built a relationship with the UK CAA to a point where they suggested we apply to take passengers flying, which, as I said, there was no mechanism for. So we asked them how we did it. And they said, we don't know. We want you to, we want you to work with us to, to make it possible. Um, and that's what we did. And so in 2000 and good grief, I can't remember, 2015, maybe 2016, we got the first, um, we got the first approval to be able to take passengers up. And then, you know, the business itself has, has boomed ever since because there are so many people fascinated by this aircraft. And who are, I would think that a lot of the people who are going up in these aircraft are people who have a story or somehow yeah. connected to it, whether it be flying it, whether it be watching it fly overhead, et cetera. Is that, is that the type of person that is typically your customer? Yeah, there's a large, a large, like I said, you know, there's very few people of my age and, and older don't have a connection to World War II in some way through family members. So it, whether it's just a connection along the lines of, you know, kids of my parents' age having a picture of a Jaguar up on the wall, Jaguar car, and thinking mm -hmm. one day maybe, and then when they get to their 60s, 70s, having the, having the disposable income, to actually go and buy it is it's a very you know so from from at that level right the way through to i'm flying with my dad's ashes or i'm flying with my dad's mesh um uh, medals or my dad flew 40 this is one that's happened I, my dad flew 49 different types of spit uh, 49 different registrations of spitfire this will be his 50th will you sign his will you sign his logbook you know on the basis that we'd just flown his ashes around so, you know, and everyone feels like they have a connection to the aircraft. The, the size of the connection differs, but there is, you know, everyone really feels it. So tell us about the genesis of the idea to, you know, circumnavigate the globe with this thing. So it comes from lots of different, you know, like any idea, it comes from lots of different sources. Primarily, we as a business set up to continue the inspiration that this aircraft created 75, 80 years ago and amazingly continues to do today and to sort of spread that around the world. Now, the nuts and bolts of how that happened was we had one two-seater. We needed a second two-seater. We bought a very original, very complete single-seat Spitfire that hadn't flown since uh, 1956, but that had been in a, in a museum ever since. And so unlike so many aircraft flying around today, it wasn't built from a data plate or, or similar. Mm -hmm. So uh, we signed a contract, buy the aircraft, and then uh, and have it restored as a two-seater. And... Uh, you know, it's the first aeroplane I'd ever owned. And it was a Spitfire. And I, you know, take you back to that looking in the shop window moment. It's amazing. And, and it didn't feel great. It did not. It didn't feel great. And, and, I, and I really kind of quizzed myself on why this was. 
a huge part of it was to do with the history. So this this very intact, very complete Spitfire, we were going to take apart, cut bits out of, put back together for the benefit of our business and for the benefit of the pleasure of people flying. So it had a good cause. But, you know, the more we looked into it, we realized it had 51 combat missions. It had uh, one success itself. You know, this was a true flying piece of history. And to cut it up just didn't seem right. So I then took my godson to see uh, Planes, the movie, and, and, and it was about <laughs> flying around the world. And it was about, it was about Dusty, the crop hopper, yeah. or whatever it's called. And I saw how inspired my godson was to sort of watching this. And I thought, well, maybe we should be doing something like that. You know, we're about inspiration. And it, and it all kind of tied together at the same time. So I came out of there and, I, and then I went up to Duxford and saw another a different aircraft being restored. And I saw the, the wing in a jig unpainted and thought, that's the most beautiful piece of engineering I've ever seen. And then I went back three weeks later and it had been painted. And a slight, even though it was, you know, green and grey and had the round all on and it was a Spitfire wing, I was really slightly disappointed by it. And then I, I thought, well, maybe, you know, there's a few things happening here in my head. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't build this two-seater. Maybe we should keep it as a single-seater. Maybe we should fly it around the world and inspire kids and people generally. And maybe we shouldn't paint it. You know, maybe actually making it about the beauty of the engineering more than about the sort of war machine that it was, was the way to do it. And certainly that would ease our crossing of borders and, and the like, rather than flying under a sort of pseudo-military flag. So that's what we did. And, um, you know, we stopped the, the contract as was and renegotiated to have it restored as was, which made the restoration company really happy themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, And so our kind of following started, and so our planning started, and that was two and a half years before we, uh, before we finally took off. And then the journey itself was a 15-week adventure. 15? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it was, a, it was a hell of an adventure. Now, we, you know, we're pilots, so we're not your kind of head out and go for it types, you know. I've two and a half years went in the two and a half years prior to flying went into how do we make this airplane without without changing it or without ostensibly changing it how do we make it as safe as possible for this trip you know how do we make sure we've got all the permissions in place we need how do we make sure that the fuel isn't where we need it etc etc and all of those things together gave me a few sleepless nights and in, in a logistical fact, nightmare I mean yeah, in fact, when we, so we turned the, uh, you know, the Spitfire as an interceptor. It was designed for short range flight to create a wall around our country initially. And therefore it has very small fuel tanks, which is obviously a terrible thing when you're trying to fly. I mean, I think the longest leg we flew was 720 nautical miles. Now, the standard fuel, it would, it would have run out at 350 nautical miles. But we found wartime, wartime modifications that they used in photo reconnaissance spitfires to add more fuel in all the different nooks and crannies that we could and ended up taking an 85-gallon aeroplane to a 202-gallon aeroplane. 
which made a significant difference. And then we were able to slightly modify the carburetor to increase the fuel burn. And in fact, we used a we used a a, a Mustang carburetor, which has a which has a detent on on the on the on the fuel cutoff lever, which allows you to you know essentially lean the um, lean the engine out a little bit. And all these little tweaks that we made, we had to put in a you know long range oil tank, have an ELT for certain places we went to. We had the fuel, so the way the fuel system works, we had a lot of fuel in the in the in the wings, and that fuel is fed by a an air pressure source, and that air pressure source is the back of the vacuum pump. And the vacuum pump was seventy five years old, so you know we could be in the middle of a sea crossing and have this old pump stop working, which would mean two things: one, our some of our instruments would stop working, big deal with VFR. But secondly, we now can't get any of the fuel out of the wing tanks. So we set up a, we set up a, got a modification and put a sort of backup pump in the line and, and we're able to sort of monitor the, monitor the pressure throughout, which, you know, sounds like a small thing and an obvious thing here, but <laughs> believe me, when you're sitting in, a, sitting in that aeroplane at 5,000 feet above the Pacific, you really want to know exactly where your fuel is and how much you've got and that, you've got a pretty good redundancy if something goes wrong with the basic system. So, so that's what went into, that's what in what's kind of went into the aircraft. And then fuel is difficult. You know, this airplane uses hundred low lead av gas. Unbeknownst to me, when I sort of conceived of the idea, GA doesn't really exist in a lot of countries around the world. You know, I'm used to flying in the UK and Europe and, and, and the US and GA, everyone does GA. So I just ignorantly presumed that it was the same everywhere. everywhere right? but, it, but it isn't. And as a result, there's no infrastructure in a lot of countries to have to provide Avgas. So, for example, I'm waffling on a bit, but That's for great. example, in, uh, in Russia, there's literally no Avgas anywhere near our route. And most of the places we stop in, you know, we, we were talking to we were talking to to a handler or a sort of a guy there who was helping us and saying, well, why can't we just why can't we just lorry it in? He goes, well, because there aren't any roads. The, on, the only <laughs> way to get fuel there is by sea, and if you don't get it there in the summer, um, all the channels freeze, so then we can't even get boats in. Wow. Okay. So we had to we had to pay for barrels, and so you know, a year before we took off, I was having to plan exactly how many barrels we would need in each of the places we went to, and then work on the basis that with VFR, we're flying 600 nautical miles on some of those legs. There's absolutely no information, no one to talk to to tell us what the weather's going on. We've got, you know, uh, predictive forecasting apps that help certainly, but then they're, they're a long way from being 100 percent. There's a pretty good chance we're going to have to turn around on some of these legs and go back to where we started. But if we've only if we've only bought enough fuel to do the leg we've got planned, then we're going to be sat there until the river unfreezes until we can get fuel back in again. So T Ray. Yeah. So so then we then we thought well we've got a we've got a Pilatus a PC12 support aircraft so we can put a bladder in that and fill that up. But you know, you can't do that public transport and some airfields won't allow you to do that, et cetera. So that had to be on the QT if we used it. And we didn't in the end. But anyway, so, there's, you know, there's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that went into making sure the basics that we take for granted day in, day out in our GA flying um, were there for us. So your, your support aircraft 
give me an idea of what you carried with you. I mean, obviously this is not, if you can't find an FBO, finding a mechanic to work on these aircraft, even where there are some can be a challenge, right? How yeah, did, absolutely. Like, how did you deal with that? What did you, what did you bring? You must've had a certain number of parts with you or did yeah. you rely on FedEx to get you stuff? You know, how did all that, how did those logistics work? So we took an engineer with us, of course, and the Spitfire's on a 25-hour maintenance cycle. So, and it's also really only approved to fly in UK airspace. So we had to get special air, special uh, dispensation uh, for every country we went to to allow the aircraft to to fly in their airspace. In addition to that, we then had to prove to our CAA that we could do just as good a job on a 25-hour check in a, in a foreign hangar that we could back at home. Um, so we had to be very sort of specific in the places we were going to. And we had to have prior agreements with them that would have certain kinds of oil and bits and pieces sent over and all the consumables that we would need was all sent ahead to each of those different places. And then we went through a sort of a process of uh, based on our experience of flying Spitfires, what are the bits that are most likely to fail and are carryable? And we will do our best to, to take those. And then for the bigger components, such as engine prop, etc., we had those crated up back at home base, ready to go in case we had to get them somewhere. Now, there are some places we wouldn't have been able to get them to for months, but there are some places we probably could have gotten them to within, you know, a couple of weeks. So this was planned down to quite literally the, the, the second in terms of fuel and in terms of every 25 yeah. hours, like you had to be in the right place every 25 hours, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we had to put quite a bit of, you know, quite a bit of fat on the brake. So, you know, rather than doing the checks every 25 hours, we did them every 20 hours to give us five hours of fudge in between. And then there's the opportunity to use an extension if necessary as well. So with that, we figured we should have enough. Again, based on the fact that it's VFR flight the whole way around the world, that whether whether it does interrupt people's plans. So yeah, it was it was an enormous amount, an enormous amount of planning went into it went into that. So the Pilatus was a superb aircraft for that and absolutely perfect for it. That's particularly, not the jet, is, it? is that the jet? No, it's it's the PC twelve is the turbine one. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, turboprop, sorry. But it also has a removable pl well. The, the military one, the special, the special ops one, has a removable plug door. Mm -hmm. So we hired a door to put on this Pilatus that we'd been lent, which was, which was exceptional and amazing because what it gave us... So, what, so one, of the other, one, of the, one of the things we realised, one of the issues we had was that there was no search and rescue for us in lots of places. So we were the only people, we were the only people that were going to look after us, certainly in the short term. So we had to have enough though well, the pilot particularly on water crossings but also over you know, desert jungle alpine etc we had to have enough on us to last for a couple of days and mm -hmm. and then we wanted capability of giving a longer duration than that so on the pilatus we had a drop bag put together with flotation devices on it that gave that had you know sort of shelter 
food, water, enough to extend the two days to about nine, nine days. Uh, and that included, you know, basic things you, don't, you probably wouldn't really think about, like mosquito spray, because you can have survived the whole thing and end up in, well, northern Canada. Jesus. Well, I, I was, you could either freeze to death in northern Canada yeah. or, you know, in some other places, as you say, it's sort of like packing for. Yeah, for everything. And we wanted one pack, basically. So, so the Royal Air Force actually put a pack together for us. And mm. they, but during your ocean crossings, you must have found yourself in some crazy remote places. Like I'm just thinking, you must have got done all of Greenland, all of uh, Iceland. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so, just to, just to go back there to the to the to finishing off with the plug door, we, we we sort of had this had this process where we could kind of throw the bag out and hope we got close. With the particularly in the water, it's really difficult unless you get a very very close hit. But we also used it for uh, photography and videography, which means we've been able to get a you know fantastic memory of the trip, and we've got a, a documentary that should be coming out in the next couple of months that um, the Red Bull have ended up buying. Um, so it will be uh, well one to look out for. We ended up going to twenty six countries, I think. If you don't, if you don't class Scotland as a country. <laughs> Which was the most memorable one for you? So I slightly like asking, which is your favourite kid? Um, <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. Come on. <laughs> um, you mentioned Greenland earlier. Greenland was spectacular. You know, just, just, you know, the flying into Kulisut, a gravel runway, icebergs and big mountains all around it. And then taking off out of there and then flying over this sort of ice cap for an hour and a half uh, with these azure blue lakes on them that I've never seen before, you know, in photos even. Uh, that was pretty spectacular. And that was a real, real sense of adventure, a real feeling of, bloody hell, I'm not sure anyone's done this before. And it really felt like we were on our way then. So that was, that was very special. I think going into Russia, another very similar feeling. You know, I've, I've done a lot of flying in the US and in Canada before, and that felt very comfortable and very enjoyable. And uh, and particularly, obviously, the west coast of Canada was extreme. Yeah, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? Yeah, that was that was it, that was stunning. But we knew we were the friendly folk. If something went wrong, you know, and there's having that kind of if I have to if I have to. If I have to ditch here, I'm pretty sure there'll be a Canadian helicopter here pretty quickly <laughs> coming looking for me. But when we when we cross the border into Russia, you're like, mm, not sure that they're going to be so friendly. I'm not sure they're going to be so friendly. They were. They utterly were. How? What would have happened had we had an emergency of some sort? I've no idea. But actually, in the end, going through Russia worked very well, and we were we were very well helped by an organization that, that tends to help sort of around the world people going through Russia and they, they knew their stuff and they, they made it happen for us very well. You had but, that, but, that, but that feeling, that feeling there of, of just being on your own, you know, that, that there are no scars on the land that, that I mean, there were, you know, we were, we were flying in between airports with no diverts, no options that were themselves suboptimal for use. You know, one one runway we landed on was metal, made of metal. We landed on, which I'd never even heard of, 
it wasn't it wasn't that the substructure was metal with something laid over the top it was just metal lattice which was a real a real bone shaker um but so so we were we were flying between places that were in themselves you know interesting and odd but in between for 500 nautical miles nothing absolutely nothing no sign of human habitation whatsoever and isn't it amazing that there are still places like that like it, it, oh, yeah it's i mean we flew we flew for four or five days like that just nothing mm. and then we'd land in that we'd land in a place and there'd be 500 people live there yeah. and then we took off again and flew for another 500 miles and then landed somewhere else equally as small it's it's uh, it's so different to the life we know now um, it must have been such a such an amazing experience, and I know that when you came to the U.S., you had uh, you landed in the Mojave Desert, and you ended up at the Virgin Galactic facilities, and so yeah, that must, that must have been an interesting past and future moment, right? Of in terms of aviation, yeah, it was very cool actually. We thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed that meeting again. Like everywhere we went, we were really well looked after, and uh, yeah, seeing seeing their um, Seeing their uh, adventure unwinding in front of us was was very special. I have to say, actually, uh, and I and I I have no idea whether this is, this is connected, but I'm taking credit. Um, I saw I saw the spaceship pushed out of the hangar about a week ago. When we saw it, it was white. It's now all polished silver. Just saying. Listen, <laughs> you, you know, having having been around. Uh green aircraft uh having worked at a manufacturer and and all that there is an amazing industrial beauty to aircraft whether they I mean, of course when you talk about a spitfire it's a different story but even if you take a modern jet today and you there's something about the rivets and the the human aspect of it coming together that the paint sort of takes away yeah that's very true very very true and and then in in the case of this spitfire when the guys were restoring it, they're real perfectionists. So they'd say, hey, there's a big dent on the wing here. And I'd say, well, we want to, we want to completely replace that panel. I said, well, what's the dent from? He says, well, it's probably an engineer back in the day dropping a spanner. Oh, that's it's history. Mm-hmm. I don't want it removed. I want it left. Mm-hmm. So, as, so, so as a result, and they, they hated that initially because they wanted to, they, for us, you know, they want, and for themselves and for their pride, they wanted to, create or, or restore something perfect but that's not what we wanted so the airplane from a distance looks utterly exquisite and perfect and then when you get up close you can see all these dents and dings and marks and you can see panel networks and you can see replacement panels where it had a gear up landing and we one panel we think was flak where um six aircraft went out and only three came back on a really mm-hmm. high flak when they were escorting bombers on a bombing run in 1944 you know and if they replace the panels that history's gone forever so um and in fact on the on the right wing someone has has carved their initials so when i first saw that i was like that's too much and then i thought i don't know you know this this they, they may have been done in the museum which is part of history but it may well have been it may have been wartime too so all of it all of it is um is preserved and very visible and like like you say with the paint and particularly with with old airplanes i found like the wing i saw restored when you when you take a an airplane that is 
from the 1940s and it's 70 odd years old and you cover it in 2021 paint your your head knows it's old but your heart doesn't really believe it it's just it's just too perfect it reminds me a little bit of uh i don't know that it's a trend or not but you know people who are restoring bar finds cars yeah yeah they're not repainting them they're sealing in the rust and the yeah exactly and all that just because as you say it the you know having the car be mechanically sound is one thing and i mean that yeah. I think, uh, you embrace technology or whatever you need to make that happen but on the exterior i'm i'm a believer that everything has a story to it right and it's yeah, interesting exactly. to preserve that especially on something as uh, as historic really as as uh, the aircraft you're talking about the spitfire yeah yeah that's right and then particularly you know so I mentioned the wheels up landing. So there's a Norwegian pilot who was who was flying out of a place called Ford on the south coast, who who had a wheels up landing at night. And when they took the airplane apart, they they saw all the infield um, repairs that were made to um, because of that that happened. They said, well, the, you know, this frame we need to completely replace. I'm like, well, why? It flew for another 28 missions after that. Why does it need to be replaced now? Well, the rivet pattern on one side is straight and it's zigzag on the other. I'm like, brilliant. That's even better. (laughs) Exactly. Who's going to tell the story about this guy if you remove that? So you must know every inch of this airplane like the back of your hand. Yeah, I know it pretty well. (laughs) It's funny. I was, uh, you know, when you speak to to, to guys on on the production lines and they look at airplanes that they've built and they're flying, They'll tell you about every rivet they've put into it. They know every little piece that they've done. It's really, uh, there's, a, there's a huge source of pride, I think. Yeah. Uh, whether it be on the production line or whether it be with restorers or yourself uh, owning the aircraft that I think is, it's really neat. You, you did this 15-week uh, trip. Was the aircraft reliable? Yeah, unbelievably so. I mean, we had a few gauge issues. Um, we had a uh, we had a slight rumble that started quite worryingly on the leg between Taiwan and Hong Kong, so over some pretty tasty water. It was just I mean it was nothing it was nothing worrying other than the fact that I mentioned you know pilots you know when you I think tend to tend to presume the worst and hope for the best sort of thing and 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 plan and fly accordingly. So having flown these airplanes for a long time, I kind of, 90% of me knew that it was just a plug issue or a mag issue and it was just a sort of slight mistiming or a fa- even probably a fouling. Right. 10%, 10% of me thought it's the start of the total cataclysmic destruction of the power plant in front of me. <laughs> And it, and it took us a while to find it. Actually, we we you know we landed in Hong Kong, which was a you know you, you mentioned moments earlier, landing a Spitfire at Chet Black Cock with you know seven airliners waiting uh, to take off and Cathay, and that was exceptional. Anyway, landed at landed at Hong Kong, and uh, our engineer got out and um, checked all the plugs and found one of them was indeed oil up. So he cleaned it back together ran it no problem and then the the problem kept coming back so i realized that it was something about that cylinder particularly 
thought it might have been a mag. So we changed the mag, seemed better for a while, then it came back again. And it, it ended up, even though we'd had the, um, we'd had the harnesses tested again, ended up there was a breakdown in one of the, the mag harnesses, the leads. And when we replaced that, it was, um, it was better again. So that was that was the only that was the only one where we started thinking, God, this could be this could be bad, bad. Everything else was just um, we had an oil pressure gauge sticking and eventually failing, and an airspeed indicator failed, and a rad temperature gauge failed, and well, that's about it, really. And what about your single longest leg on this journey? So that was between uh, Kuwait and Jordan. I think you know seven hundred and thirty nautical miles pretty much all over the deserts over saudi arabia with the iraqi border five miles to the north the whole way which was interesting uh thoroughly enjoyable flight actually i have to say you know it was you get a real sense of the scale of the planet when you go across one country and it takes that period of time to do it you know not too slow a speed it had a true airspeed of probably um, 210, 220 knots. And um, how long is the flight for those of us? Again? For those of us who are nautical mile challenged, um, yeah. what would you say is the flying time? The flying time for of that longest flight. Oh, I see. Sorry, it was three hours and thirty minutes. I think just amazing expanse of desert, which was fascinating. And then going into Jordan, we flew over Wadi Rum, and then the, the sand goes really, really red, and felt like being in a uh, you know Star Wars film. And um, I'd be lying if I said I didn't um, drop down below the Pilatus a little bit and uh, go and explore some of the monoliths that exist around there. <laughs> well, I'm just looking at the picture of uh, you just over the pyramids in Egypt, I guess. Yeah, that was the flight after that one. That was that was another incredible moment, yeah. and particularly because and particularly because the Spitfire had such a such a huge influence in that arena around around sort of Egypt particularly. So to take it back there and fly over those things, which you know we talk about human design and, and longevity and beauty and my God, the pyramids are all of those things. So sticking a Spitfire over the top and getting a photo of the two together was pretty cool. Yeah, fair. I'm just looking at some of the pictures now. It's really amazing. Um, before we go, I, uh, you're someone who's clearly living the dream in terms of aviation. And, and when you say it, you mean it. But COVID's kind of, I know, I'm, I'm sure that amongst the pilot community where you are, you know, there's many, uh, many pilots waiting for their next ride. What would you, what words of encouragement would you have for them? I mean, you've, you've really gone through the aviation industry. You've done different things before, you know, finding this. What would you tell people who are just sitting there like waiting for their next flying job? It's, it's not been a smooth road at all. You know, I've, for starters, what I wanted to do was fly in the Air Force. As it happens, I don't think I'd have been very good at it. But that's what I wanted. And it, that didn't work for me. And I went off on a different path. And then... Eventually, like I said earlier, I thought, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'll be an airline pilot or similar and just, just enjoy flying in that respect. But got my licenses and literally within weeks of getting the piece of paper through the door saying I was good to go, I watched the, you know, the 
to planes flying to the towers. Now, obviously, a lot of people suffered a hell of a lot worse than I did in that moment, in exactly the same way that a lot of people are suffering through COVID in a way that's much tougher than not being able to fly for a while. Um, but the market does come back and we, we want to travel as a species. You know, that is evident by the number of aeroplanes there are in the world, both, you know, airliners and, and small aeroplanes. Um, I think it's just a case for me of um, counting your chickens and, and realising that we're still lucky to be here and have your, have your health. And the days will come back, uh, and uh, they certainly did for me, and I'm sure they will for everyone else. And I think the thing that I found interesting about your story is that uh, you ended up, you know, was it luck, was it timing that you met someone who had an interesting project and you ended up sort of where you are today? I think it was, I think it was a number of things. It was luck, it was timing, it was, you know, there are some people in life who, who could be lucky if only they could see the fact that they were having the opportunities. And I think as long as you keep your eyes open and, and look for the opportunities, then you at the end of your life could probably turn around and say, yeah, I was pretty lucky. You know, it, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a huge mindset there for, for um, you know, for, for, for seeing opportunity and, 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 and seeing the glasses half full as opposed to half empty. So. And I think those are great words to end on. But if uh, people want to go and be inspired by uh, your journey, where can they go check out your photos and where can they get in touch with you? So there's a couple of places. If you look at um, silverspitfire.com, that'll give you information about the trip we've, we've done. It'll also be, we haven't updated it that much recently because we haven't been doing a great deal. Um, but we're working on a book at the moment and the documentary is now edited, cut, complete. So we're just waiting to hear from distributors as to when it'll air and that information will be on there. Um, additionally, if you put spitfires.com into the internet, it'll take you to our business, which gives you the opportunity to live this dream a little yourself you know we we take people up flying in the spitfire and we do displays and we have a the, only, the world's only um spitfire simulator um oh, wow. yeah we, we built it out of a um, built it out of a, a many parts of original airplanes so when you sit in this thing you're in a real a spit or you're in a number of spitfires essentially <laughs> that flew in the war and it sits in a 300 oh sorry 220 degree dome um, right. so, it's, so it's a cool experience so we, we have lots of you know we do lots of fun spitfire stuff to try and keep the um keep the history and keep the memory alive so if you fancy being part of that it'd be great to great to see you down at goodwood in the uk well next time i'm in the uk i was there actually last february three weeks before shutdown asked oh, me really? how happy i was to just have traveled recently you know yeah right yeah but i'll for sure my sister lives in london so Next time, well, yeah, I'll come and see us. You up for sure. Come and see us, Patrick. Well, listen, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us. I think it's been uh, really, really cool. And I'll just remind everyone that they can go check out. Uh, I just want to remind everybody to go check out Airside. And uh, thanks again, uh, Matt. Great, uh, great pleasure, Patrick. Great thanks for your time too. Thanks for your interest. Thanks. Mm -hmm.
CAE Pilot Podcast is brought to you by CAE, the global leader in training for the civil aviation, defense and security, and healthcare markets. For more information, check out CAE.com.